This episode of Inspired Souls is brought to you by Canadian Masters Athletics. CMA is a vibrant and welcoming community of Canadians aged 35 and over who share a passion for track and field, cross country, road running, and race walking. That's right, you can participate in athletics until you're in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. In fact, you're never too old to join CMA, only too young. How about that for a refreshing twist? But women in their mid-30s and beyond often face unique challenges such as peri- and post-menopause that can prevent them from being or staying active. This educational series from CMA will address many of these challenges head-on, remove barriers for women who may be struggling, and remind us that we're not alone. So without further delay, please enjoy our conversation with Val Schoenberg. Food and eating should really be simple. You don't have to have this Instagram-worthy, complicated meal to really be nourishing your body well. I mean, it really can be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk and an apple. That was Val Schoenberg, and this is episode 172 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a road runner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Val Schoenberg is a registered and licensed dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition science from the University of Minnesota. She is board certified as a specialist in sports dietetics, a certified menopause practitioner with the Menopause Society, and a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Val owns a private practice in Atlanta, Georgia, where she specializes in midlife health and menopause, recreational and professional sports nutrition, all types of eating disorders, and helping individuals break free from dieting and disordered eating. In this conversation, we talk about the common tendency to overthink nutrition. In the most compassionate way possible, Val invites us to embrace the idea that nutrition can be simple, that midlife can be a great opportunity to rethink our health goals, and how we can shift our focus from weight to well-being. Val discusses her sensible food-first approach to nourishing our bodies, testing versus guessing when it comes to supplementing, and perhaps my favorite, non-scale victories. Val is passionate about providing nutrition care to populations vulnerable to eating disorders and promoting positive nutrition messages that help people make informed decisions about their health and live a life where they are at peace in their relationship with food and their body. And now on to our conversation with Val Schoenberg. Val, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So on your website, you are listed as a midlife health and nutrition specialist, and you have a lot of impressive letters <laughs> behind your name. <laughs> but a quote jumped out at me from your about page that says, I am passionate about helping women rethink their response to aging and avoid falling prey to the confusion of diet culture. So I thought that would be a really lovely place to start. How did you become interested in helping women in midlife? Oh, I love starting from there. It is an interesting story because I, my background clinically was working in eating disorders. I worked in all levels of care with all types of eating disorders with all ages. And I was specializing in binge eating disorder and working with a number of women in that area. And I was starting to find that women between the ages of 40 and 60 after they had like stabilized their eating, they had this next level of concern, which is my body's changing. I don't know what to do about this. And this was a little over a dec decade ago. And I was just trying to find a good resource to give people or a referral or a reference or a book or something. And everything that I would find or a colleague would recommend, if I read it, I thought, really? Like, 
why would we do that? And then I started to notice some similar symptoms. I'm 58 now. And I became more curious, right? So I was really trying to come up with some direction for my clients. And yet I became more and more curious. And as I started asking questions, I tell people it was kind of like pulling a string on a sweater and it just starts to untangle and you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. And so um, by 2015, I decided to you know, really focus my effort in there. And that is when I got certified as a menopause practitioner with the North American Menopause Society at the time. Um, but I'm also a sports dietitian. So um, I worked with the University of Minnesota women's gymnastics team. I work with a lot of elite and professional and Olympic level athletes. Uh, so that kind of my work is like a Venn diagram, right? Like I have disordered eating and eating disorders and a sense of understanding of the impact of diet culture on all ages. And then I have this like sports nutrition kind of deep dive into research. And then there was this menopause research. And to be honest, like oftentimes I feel like there are three ivory towers of research and none of them talk to each other. Yeah. And so I feel like sometimes I'm in the middle saying, okay, but, 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 but what about (laughs) this over here? And so it is really fascinating, but that's what really brought me into the menopause space. And Personally, as a woman going through the menopause transition and where I'm at now, I found it super helpful to know what was going on. I It felt a lot more grounding to kind of be able to laugh at a hot flash. I mean, I don't mean to minimize if someone really is disrupted by their hot flashes, but when you just know like, okay, this is what's going to happen. And yes. the level of resilience, I think, can be different when you really understand what's normal and appropriate and what might be, you know, disordered and something you need to get some help with. Wow. So you mentioned your Venn diagram and how these things do overlap, even though they may theoretically exist in their ivory towers. Let's just dive right in there. Are women at this stage of life that we're talking about on this show prone to disordered eating more? And if so, why or why not? Well, the research would say that they are. And you know, if you look at the data, uh, when they do prevalence research, for example, the prevalence for the development of an eating disorder at age 40 is 3.5% of women. If you compare that to similar prevalence data for breast cancer, for example, which, you know, most people are very aware of and vigilant about preventive care and reducing the risk of getting breast cancer, right? But the prevalence for a 40-year-old to get breast cancer is 1.55%. And the prevalence of a 50-year-old is 2.4%. So the perspective is that 3.5 or 3.6%, depending on what study you look at, might not seem like a lot of women or people, um, because this, but this is women that they look at. um, And these are DSM-5, Diagnostical Statistic Manual, Diagnosable Eating Disorders. And of those only about a quarter, 25% actually seek treatment. So it, it is something that we, we see in clinic. And, you know, even if I'm working in a sports medicine clinic, which I do an orthopedic and spine sports medicine clinic, I can certainly have a 50 year old come in, not diagnosed with an eating disorder, but after my nutrition assessment, I would say there's some signs of an eating disorder here. Now, I can't diagnose an eating disorder that has to be done by a psychologist, but you you can pick up on 
that there's there's some really intense disruption to that person's um, well-being and their mental health. Mm-hmm. And have you developed any of your own theories as to why you might see a, a resurface of eating disorder behavior uh, at this time of life? Well, I don't really need to develop my own theories. There are some really, really great researchers who are trying to understand this. I think there's a few things. When we talk about eating disorder development, we think of it from a biopsychosocial perspective, so biologically, psychological, and the social or environmental aspects. So from a biological standpoint, this is where genetics are a big place but also hormone fluctuations. So this is why puberty is also a time that individuals are vulnerable to the onset of an eating disorder, even just nutrition status, right? So if you're under eating or potentially even under consuming carbohydrates specifically, that can throw off brain balance in terms of, you know, you've got the genetic component and some of those other things. So there's the biological, then there's the psychological component. So when we think about athletes as a a demographic, Athletes generally are perfectionists. They have a strong work ethic. Uh, They're able to push themselves past discomfort, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would you do 100 miles? Like who in the world does that? You have to be able to really tolerate a certain level of discomfort. So if you think about under eating or eating disorders, those are uncomfortable things to do to your body. So there's a lot of psychological and even in that psychological domain would be your beliefs about menopause. So if you're raised, and I think this is happening more and more right now, which is a little bit frightening to me, but there's this idea that menopause is this dreaded thing or dreaded disease. And then it sets people up for not necessarily self-fulfilling prophecy, but something similar that they're much more having negative emotions about the symptomatology that comes along with menopause. That's the psychological. And then there's the social domain, which would be, okay, I'm an empty nester. My kids have left. My parents are aging. Maybe your spouse or yourself has lost your job or you're having a career change or you're downsizing. Now you're only cooking for one or two. So all of those factors together can really kind of set the stage for either a resurgence of an eating disorder that might have even been, say, resolved, say an individual had an eating disorder in their teens, and then it went into remission, or they went through recovery, and then or life just got really busy, so they just didn't deal with it. And then it comes back. Um, And some of that could be that identity shift and all those other things. But certainly, if you look at the endocrinology and the changes that are happening in the brain with those fluctuating hormones during the perimenopause or the menopause transition, it is really similar to the dynamics of puberty and how our brain is just a little bit off. Um, So those are some of the factors that they look at in the research. Wow. (laughs) Women are facing a lot at this time of of life. So let's just Mm -hmm. pause and acknowledge that. But, you know, what in your practice, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see people? I I don't even want to say mistakes, like challenges, patterns that you see over and over again, where you're like, oh, but if you could just do it like this way, it would be such a better outcome. Yeah, I think. A simple way to say it is overthinking nutrition. Like I often say, food and eating should really be simple. 
Like when we think about when we're born, we are born with an innate ability to cry when we're hungry and get food and stop or push away when you're full, Mm -hmm. right? So this is the premise around intuitive eating, right? That we have this instinctive innate ability to recognize what our body needs. Now, certainly as we get older, we get all these external messages that hijack that. And for athletes, again, um, even without those external messages or chatter, you know, even just stress or anxiety or the intensity of training can really mess up those internal cues. So it can be confusing, like, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? I don't really know. How much should I eat? But then that with, okay, well, this person said, you know, I really shouldn't eat this after I work out, or this person said, I really probably need to cut back on carbohydrates because boy, if I get insulin resistance and everyone with menopause has insulin resistance and some of those kinds of um, narratives that are floating around, then women start to question their innate ability to tune into their body and know what they need. Um, So I, I do think, I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's something I see quite common, which is reminding women like food and eating really is quite simple. And, and, and then that's where my role is, is helping people come back to those practical, realistic, we don't have to have this Instagram worthy, complicated meal to really be nourishing your body. Well, I mean, it really can be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk and an apple. And, um, you know, and some people don't like that, but for whatever reason, but that is kind of what, you know, recognizing, um, you know, really prioritizing, listening to their body, fueling their body from a health standpoint versus all the external noise and chatter and fear mongering or fear based Mm -hmm. messaging, I think is contributing to the confusion that women have. That could be undoing decades of behaviors and belief systems and patterns, right? Like, um, we've kind of been we talked about this with somebody else. Like we don't haven't been able to trust ourselves for for so long. A lot of us that um, do, do women sort of freak out when you say we, we it's simple. Like you just need to learn to listen to your body. Uh, like how how do people respond that may genuinely have a, a fear of food or gaining weight or trusting themselves? You know, it's interesting. Like listening to you say it that way. Um, it's not a minimizing kind of message. Like. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when I might suggest that the response I hear from women is, oh, Ah, permission, right? Yeah. yeah, Well, oh my gosh. Like, why am I overthinking this? Why am I making it so hard? And honestly, where that center of that onion, if we start peeling the layers is because of the body changes. Yes. Right. I mean, nine times out of 10, it's yeah, but. I'm really afraid I'm going to gain weight or I have gained weight or I'm uncomfortable in my body. My body is changing um, this, that, and the other thing. So I must need to change my nutrition. And so even if someone were, you know, ticking along just fine with their nutrition and not really thinking that hard about it or having to somehow there's something that changes and then they start questioning it. And um, even I get this from individuals who work in the eating disorder space who will reach out to me and say, they think they need to change something about their eating. And I'm like, what makes you feel like you need to change something like that's right. And so, you know, really kind of 
drilling into what are you worried about? Like, what are you worried about in regards to your nutrition? And let's address that. Because if, if someone like, let's say went to the doctor and they found out that their cholesterol was increasing, then that might make sense of, boy, I feel like I eat really healthy. I, you know, work out, I do all this stuff. And now my cholesterol is increasing. What do I need to do? That makes sense that you would seek out, you know, some nutrition advice to figure out what could we do from a lifestyle and nutrition standpoint to help improve your health. But in the absence of some of those things, I do think uh, for the most part, there is a lot of, even just my friends, right? Like the chatter Mm -hmm. that comes Mm -hmm. up about um, needing to eat something different, better, perfect, correct, and right kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of that is initiated by or triggered by, like you just said, there are changes happening, you know, women are gaining weight or they're just redistributing it, body composition changes. Why are these changes happening from your perspective? And what can we do? Like maybe we don't need to eat differently, but is there something that we can focus on proactively from a nutrition perspective? Well, so the the first question is, well, why do women gain weight, right? And um, that is what kind of started me on this in the space to begin with is really trying to understand the reason because to be perfectly honest, around 2014, 2015, the narrative at the time was all about estrogen dominance. Um, This is the reason for all of women's problems. And people were writing books about estrogen dominance. And then the pendulum swang to, well, no, 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 it's not about estrogen dominance. It's actually estrogens depleted. So this is why women are gaining weight and experiencing this shift to the the belly. And so I cannot tell you how much reading and research and, you know, and again, it's been a while to go into that. And I can honestly tell you, I don't think they really know. Okay. (laughs) Right. Um, What the research would tell you though. So if you really look at the research, it seems to be aging more than the stage of menopause Mm. that is a, is correlated with weight gain. But then if you look at that research, the weight gain that they cite in those studies, which is largely based on the SWAN data or the study of women's health across the nation research, um, it's about five pounds. And I would tell you that 100% of the women I see would say if it was only five pounds. Right. So that means that women's reality and you have to kind of understand the background and history of the SWAN data and the SWAN study. So bringing it back to an individual who maybe has experienced a dramatic weight shift, if we're trying to understand like, huh, I wonder why that is. So yes, again, biopsychosocial, right? Biologically, hormones are shifting and changing. So they definitely have some type of a role. What that is, is right. Like we know that there's some redistribution of body fat to the abdomen. If you look at some of the research, it's suggestive that that adipose tissue that is deposited there is where some of the aromatization of those androgens so it can produce an estrogen or a form of estrogen it's not the estradiol that what the ovaries were doing but when the ovaries have kind of shut down then we should be able to produce that estrogen which has a protective role in the body but a lot of women are experiencing this shift and change during perimenopause, when actually there are many times when estrogen is quite high, um, when you look at the research. Plus, again, remember, I have a eating disorder background. I've worked with 
numbers of individuals with anorexia or even hypothalamic amenorrhea. And their estrogen and progesterone look like postmenopause, even mm -hmm. in a 26-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't have this random weight gain right. for no good reason or a shift in body fat to the abdomen either. Right. So it can't just be low estrogen because then we would right. see this in these other presentations. Mm. So yes, hormones, yes, aging. So we have this natural loss of lean tissue as we age. So this is why certainly activity, um, resistance type activity might be a really important intervention if that's something that someone has access to or wants to do. But the other part that, again, I'm aware of in my little Venn diagram is um, disordered eating and diet cycling. So if you've lost and gained and lost and gained and lost and gained, it doesn't take much to look at that research to know that there's a protective benefit by the body that every time you lose weight, you lose lean tissue. And when you gain the weight back, you gain it back more preferentially as fat tissue. And so over time, I mean, I've seen women who have been dieting for 40 years by the time they're 60. And so does that have a role, right? Like, no, that's where probably there's a lack of really good research in this particular age group to say, what if we controlled for that a little bit better in studies right. to understand the role of that as well? Yeah. So what I'm really hearing as far as like coming to terms with this is simply that, like just accepting that this is a natural stage in life. Like we don't freak out when our child triples their weight in the first year of life, right? We're just like, that's normal. Yay, they're on the, the proper curve. Um, so if we could almost bring that mindset to middle age and say, okay, there might be some body composition changes. That's okay, right? That that almost can could be the solution to some of what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I would hope that that could be the solution. But I think when women are really have a safe space to talk about that, they're like, but it's not okay, mm. right? It's really uncomfortable, and I really yeah. validate that for women that yeah. it is okay to still desire the weight loss or to grieve the loss of your younger self or to feel completely perplexed and confused because what the heck is going on? Like your body doesn't feel like yourself. You don't feel normal. So then how do we get back that sense of control um, without contributing to all these other problems that I just described? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where, you know, really a lot of body image work comes into play and, um, what I talk about is shifting from weight to well-being. So it's not that we're going to dismiss the person's concern about weight, but to really bring it back to, you know, first of all, what other things in your life are really important to you? Because if the rest of our life is going to be consumed with trying to fix or shrink our body, that probably is going to hijack you from your other passions and causes. So there's like this kind of ambivalent thing, this give and take that we have to do. But I'm very sensitive to women's concerns about their weight and um, and really helping them figure out how to come to a place of acceptance. But that is easier said than done. Yeah. Let's talk to the female athlete for a moment. How do female athletes need to address nutrition during this phase of life potentially differently than the general population? Well, probably not a whole lot different than they were before, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were 30 years old and then you're 40 and then you're 50, and even if we think about our 60 and 70 year old 
women who are exercising and older, they still need to make sure one, they're listening to their body, right? You know, are their hunger and fullness cues accurate? Is that something that can, that can become a reliable indicator of needing to fuel? Or as we age, we start to lose appetite. So this is another thing, like actually weight loss is more likely after age 65. And it actually is highly correlated with mortality risk. So it's something that we want to be aware of that, uh, you know, how do we help support women uh, with simple, easy, convenient ideas um, around their, you know, nourishing their body. But for any female athlete, no matter what the age, they probably have to fuel a little bit more, a little bit more intentionally depends on their level of activity, right? Are they a casual exerciser or are they, you know, a, an elite competitive athlete? You know, right. those, those might kind of dictate a little bit of the importance around the timing, mm-hmm. but in general, you know, my direction for really anyone, but then I think it does become a little more important for our female athletes is you really want to make sure you're fueling during your most active time of the day. Right. So I cannot tell you how many times I have high level athletes who are kind of like skipping breakfast, still not eating very much right after an intense bout of activity, and then kind of catching up later in the day or on weekends or that kind of a thing. And just really helping them shift that. Um, Every time we are, I can tell you that women, especially these athletes will come back and say, oh my goodness, how much better they feel, how much more energy they feel, you know, and that's usually what they're coming from, you know, for too, is that they're so fatigued, they're noticing a drop in their metabolic adaptations that they do get from the activity, they're not getting stronger, they're not feeling fast enough, um, some of those things. And so when we work on that timing around nutrition, uh, they and give and and help them understand, like, you might have to train your gut a little bit, like if you're so for many, many years, used to running on empty, we're going to have to work on how do we teach you to be able to do it. And at this age, it might even become more important. Right. Yeah, that timing piece is so huge. And, and kind of back to that intuitive eating, that might be a time where people say, I'm actually not really that hungry after yeah. after the hard workout. So in, in that case, you're almost reeducating like, okay, even even if you're not that hungry now is really, you know, after activity is really the time to get in that fuel. Is that right. and, what and I'm then- hearing? Absolutely. And, and really respectfully understanding why that might be that, but you know, I saw, I see this in younger athletes too, right? Like, I mean, soccer players are a great example, like 90 minutes out on a hot field, they get done. And the last thing I want to do is eat anything. Yeah. And so then it's like, well, let's find something cold. Let's find something that you can drink because you're probably going to benefit from something that's cold, tastes good, um, you know, drink it versus trying to eat chew. Um, and, and then just figuring out like based on their food preferences, what they can throw in their bag, what is going to be, you know, most um, practical for them then, and then fit it into, yep. Okay. And we want to make sure that we're rehydrating and that we're refueling those carbohydrate stores and that we're recovering, you know, that protein and, um, your muscle work and, and then giving them like, okay, here's the three things that you're going to do over the next week to practice that. And so right. 
with all of my athletes, it's like, well, let's practice your nutrition, mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. you practice your sprints or you practice your hills or whatever right. you focus on there. Yeah, it's a skill, right? It can be trained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, and that language would land, right, for an athlete very much. Um, we actually had one woman that we interviewed comment, like when her perimenopausal symptoms started to, to show up, she wasn't connecting dots and she actually thought that she was in low energy availability or, or um, red S, like her reds. <laughs> um, relative energy deficiency in sports. So I'm I'm wondering if you've ever seen that in your practice and maybe backing up if you could just define that for people and, and comment on what you've seen. Yeah, we definitely see it in the sports medicine clinic, probably most regularly. Um, and the way this shows up, so just for your audience to know that perimenopause literally means around menopause. So it's the years leading up to the final menstrual period And some of the characteristic or hallmark signs of perimenopause are irregular menstrual cycles and increase or decrease in bleeding. Um, This is often when a woman will start to notice the onset of vasomotor symptoms, which is really a technical term for hot flashes and night sweats. And REDS, on the other hand, or relative energy deficiency in sport, is defined as a syndrome of symptoms that impact both physiological and psychological health. So there's a lot of different um, symptoms related to that, but it's due to a low energy condition. So where the amount of energy you're taking in isn't enough to fuel all your essential body functions after that energy has been used to do the activity. So essential body functions suffer. So many of the signs and symptoms of REDS include things that mirror perimenopause. So you might see irregular menstrual cycles, maybe even some amenorrhea, um, sleep disturbances, brain fog, hair loss, digestive concerns is another big one, irritability or mood dysregulation, low bone density, which often in our clinic will present with somebody showing up with a bone stress injury or a soft tissue injury. And then when we do, and also along with that, we might see Um, other things like low vitamin D, low iron. And they've been told, oftentimes the athlete has been told that it's probably perimenopause. So just, just disregard it. Well, that's problematic. So just so that we are clear, early menopause is defined as menopause occurring before age 45. So that can happen either because of surgical menopause, where a woman had both of her ovaries removed, Mm -hmm. um, or it could be primary ovarian insufficiency, which is generally before age 40, where a woman, you know, has like amenorrhea, they and primary ovarian insufficiency is diagnosed with blood testing, and consecutive blood testing. And then they will drill down into other testing to find out what genetic anomalies or some other uh, reasons for that. Um, because that's treated differently, even than menopause, mm. right? So primary ovarian insufficiency is going to be addressed. If you're earlier than age 40 and have um, early menopause, then you really need to look at hormone therapy differently than say a 47 or 48 year old or 55 year old woman. Um, So all of those things are important. So if it is REDS, then the treatment needs to be nutritional rehabilitation not hormone therapy. But what I see happening are these 38 year olds who think they have 
perimenopause, and then they're chasing down supplements right. and maybe then they're wondering about hormone therapy. And that might be the case. I'm not saying it's not perimenopause, but it's really important to do a thorough assessment with a qualified provider um, and ideally, you know, a dietitian who's reds informed to mm-hmm. really look at that. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. Um, so you you touched on it there, like a hallmark of of reds is not eating enough to meet our activity level, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the treatment for that would be like we eat more, right? We intentionally eat more. We restore the menstrual period. Like you know, all, everything comes around. And I'm hearing that a lot more than lately than I ever have before. It's always like eat less, eat less. Like my whole life, it's like mm-hmm. what what can we do to eat less? <laughs> you know. And now I'm hearing like eat more, eat more. You're an athlete. And I've got to admit, like, it's a little confusing. Like I will sometimes second guess myself. Am I eating and not enough or am I eating too much? Like, right. Because I'm overthinking. I'm I'm (laughs) totally overthinking it. Yes. Good point. Good point. But to our earlier conversation, I think, you know, I, I'm in my mid forties and like, yeah, I probably weigh 10 pounds more than I did 10 years ago. And it's, so it's that whole thing of like, 10 pounds more and like, how could I possibly need to eat more? Right. So, um, do you have any sort of practical advice for people that may, that are trying to navigate this minefield of information out there about what to eat and how much? Yeah. I, again, because I, I'm always so careful because even like listening to you, I could just hear the overthinking, right. That was kind of happening. And I don't think that's anything bad. Like we want to be curious and mindful about, do I need to be eating more? But, you know, and then bringing it back to, well, what's really the question about, like, is it about because you, you know, experienced a weight change and you're concerned about that? Because generally, if you feel that you're eating according to, you wake up in the morning and you feel hungry and you have something to eat and it's a meal that provides your body some protein, some carbohydrate from fruit, whole grains, maybe even yogurt or some milk or something like that. And you have some healthy fats in that. And you think about it from those that standpoint and you do that at breakfast and then you do that again at lunch. And then maybe there's a couple snacks somewhere in there that have some type of a combination of some protein and some type of carbohydrate. And then you do it again at dinner and you're eating consistently. No, not every day is that way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Things happen. Life doesn't have to be perfect and eating certainly doesn't have to be perfect. But if you recognize, look, I'm eating pretty regularly, consistently. So kind of the balance Friday moderation mantra, Mm -hmm. then you're probably okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. However, if it's, I'm never hungry for breakfast, so I don't eat breakfast. And then, and that's worked for someone forever and ever. And then like lunch comes along and they're super busy at work. And so they kind of eat on the go or grab, you know, a quick salad or whatever. And then they try to go do an afternoon training run, or maybe they worked out first thing in the morning, right? That kind of chaotic schedule is where usually we see the under eating. Yeah. 
Okay. You just described my every day. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much, I thought about it. I'm like, yep, I'm never hungry for breakfast. I always work through lunch. I, I run right after work because it clears my mind. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I get home for dinner, of course, it's it's a total mess. I'm starving and I'm not mm-hmm. eating the right things, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so that's a good sign though, right? So yeah. your body is trying to send you a signal. It's starving. And it's you notice starving. like on the yes. scale of hunger and fullness, like, whoa, I am like hangry. I'm over, Mm -hmm. over, over hungry. And again, there's nothing bad about that. Like that's the other thing is there's no judgment about that, but to be able to kind of, I can see you and you have a smile on your face to say, (laughs) oh my gosh, like that, that there we go. (laughs) And so you might consider trying or experimenting with a smoothie first thing in the morning or, you know, being really more intentional about well, what would I need to do? Because this feels really important to you because you are at this certain age and you do. And it, even from a health standpoint, right? Like, I mean, we were going to talk a little bit maybe about bone health. So that's kind of a big one of, well, what's going to take a hit from that type of eating pattern that we do over and over and over again, is that it does kind of start to impact your sleep and maybe, um, your uh, cognitive functioning and your creativeness and your energy. Like maybe your workouts just aren't as much fun and you don't feel as energized by those workouts. So it's, it's finding that intrinsic motivation of why do you want to change it? Um, when I find someone that they want to change it because they want to fix their body and what they look like, that's where we have to kind of say, okay, let's, let's spend some time, you know, like investigating that a little bit. Um, but generally like, yeah, I, I always say midlife, perimenopause, menopause is a great opportunity to rethink your health goals. Like what is important to you? And, um, and that is like, okay, maybe we got by with a lot of stuff when we were younger and growing up. But some of this, a lot of this actually isn't even menopause, right? This is happening for the male biology as well. Yeah. So some of this is really aging and and really accepting that this is the part of aging. But again, we live in a culture that's very anti-aging. And so yeah. you know, even if you measure VO2 max, I mean, even for a really, really strong endurance athlete, VO2 max still declines. You can't fix that. That's going to happen for both males and females. But if you continue to stay active and fuel your body accordingly, you're going to have a, you know, a stronger um, respiratory function than say a sedentary individual. Mm -hmm. Oh, the business mind in me is thinking lead measures versus leg measures, right? Are you focusing <laughs> on those general um, lifestyle goals versus the result, which is often the body composition at the very end of the line? Well, I always say like, yeah. you know, like if the body composition is a big part of it, yeah, spend some time exploring that, but then also take an opportunity to look at non-scale victories, mm. right? Like for me, I happen to be someone who loves weightlifting. I have, I've been weightlifting since I was in my 20s. And it's come and gone, you know, just based on seasons of my life. But I love the challenge of being able to lift heavier and heavier weight. And um, it has nothing to do with my body composition. I know in my mind that it's really good for my muscle health, but it's fun. Like it's it's a fun challenge. And so those are some of the things that 
you know, if it's if you're being driven to do the activity or eat a certain way to see a change on the scale or to see a change in the mirror, you're probably going to end up getting really frustrated and not really enjoy your food and your eating experience as well as your activity. Okay, so you mentioned bone, bone health and bone density. Let's go there now. Um, Women in menopause, you know, are at an increased risk for osteoporosis and low bone density. So what can can they do from a nutrition perspective to support bone health? Like, let's talk about calcium, vitamin D, some of the, you know, all that. Yeah, well, the number one thing is prevention as best as we can, right? So if you have someone in their 30s, Um, or 40s that are listening, this is the optimal time to not do anything to kind of take away from your bone, right? Like we, we develop our genetic potential for bone. So a lot of bone health is really related to genetics, but you reach your genetic potential by your mid to late 20s. And then from there, it's kind of this you know, downward cascade. So there's gonna be bone loss as we age, again, for both, both men and women. For women, there's this interesting thing that happens, though, in the late perimenopause, early postmenopausal years, there seems to be this more accelerated decline in bone density of about 2% per year during that time frame. And again, that's not exactly clear. It seems to have something to do with the drop in estrogen, probably, that happens in that late perimenopause. But then it'll taper off to a loss of, on average, of about 0.5% per year. So again, you know, making sure that you're doing everything you can to not contribute to the loss that's there. Because once you lose the bone, you can't get it back unless you're going to use some really intense prescription medication. From a nutrition standpoint, from a lifestyle standpoint, what supports healthy bones is eating enough, right? Dieting and weight loss in and of themselves will contribute to bone loss. Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to make sure that we're not going down that rabbit trail. Then specifically even protein. So eating Mm -hmm. enough protein. So being mindful of, do you eat protein at breakfast or do you run out the door with a granola bar? Um, You know, so having enough protein at each of those like three meals and two snacks, probably a good intention, even not only for many reasons, your immune system, your lean tissue, but also your bone health, because the bone is made up of a collagen matrix And we make that collagen comes from amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein type foods. Um, And then we get to calcium and vitamin D, right? So a lot of times I'll see my orthopedic doctors, they'll send someone to me and all they've talked about is calcium and vitamin D, which is vital and important. However, people will say, yeah, but my calcium on my blood test was normal. So my calcium must be fine. But here's the deal. The role of calcium in the body is for muscle contraction and nerve conduction. It happens to be stored in the bone. So the body will do everything it needs to, to maintain those calcium blood levels. So if you're not getting enough calcium from food in your diet or from a potential supplement, if that's indicated, then the body's like, all right, well, we're going to make sure your heart can beat. And so it'll pull that from the storage shed, which is your bones. And that's what maintains those blood calcium levels. But then that's what contribute contributes to breaking down that bone tissue. And then vitamin D is really the gatekeeper of getting the calcium up into the bones or helping with calcium absorption. So my recommendation is to focus on including 
really excellent sources of calcium regularly in the diet. This is one of the things I do with individuals is assess their calcium intake, like what kind of foods do you like to eat? What are your food preferences? How often are we eating those? And then if we're not able to do a food first approach to get those calcium, then yes, we might look at a calcium supplement. The mm-hmm. calcium recommendation for or RDA for women um, over age 50 is 1200 milligrams per day. So if you were going to do that through supplementation, you would have 500 milligram supplements um, probably two times throughout your day. It's recommended you split the doses because the body can only absorb a certain amount from those supplements. Mm -hmm. And then with vitamin D, it's really hard to get vitamin D from food. I mean, there's vitamin D in egg yolks and some other, you know, fatty fish and things like that. We get mostly vitamin D from the sun right through that metabolism Mm -hmm. that happens with the sun. But because the skin is changing when we age, there's some research that shows that maybe we don't really produce vitamin D from even through the skin as well. So if you're an outdoor runner and you've never really had to worry about your vitamin D levels, you still might want to make sure you're having those checked because Mm -hmm. it could shift and change as you get older. Okay. And then I would I simply supplement with a thousand to 2000 IUs of vitamin D3 a day. But my recommendation on anything is to always test versus guess. So I'm mm-hmm. not a big fan of just throw a bunch of supplements at someone to cover our bases. Um, that gets expensive. And, you know, sometimes something like say calcium supplement, maybe someone's digestive system doesn't tolerate very well. And they would, they would do better if they could maximize their nutrition their calcium from food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, that, you know, there's not like a perfect answer, but those are some of the general guidelines for things like all the other micronutrients like my, uh, magnesium and vitamin K that definitely have a role in um, bone metabolism. The research and the, the bone health researchers do not recommend supplementing those. I don't think it would hurt if someone did, um, but there's not really solid research that says, putting vitamin D3 together with K2 is going to maximize bone density in any way. Um, But again, I I see a lot of people doing that combination supplement. Okay. So I'm really hearing a food first approach from you. you That's the whole definition of a supplement, right? It supplements something. So what does it supplement? It supplements a, a good diet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and also I don't know if there's much truth to this, but I've always heard that the uh, vitamins and like calcium and everything is better absorbed from the food sources mm-hmm. anyhow, right? Because there it's packaged just so that the body prefers. Is that true? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um and even even if you look at a chart of calcium absorption and calcium bio, it's really about bioavailability, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, why do we absorb calcium better from a glass of milk than say almonds? So you can get calcium in almonds, you can get calcium in collard greens, you can get calcium in a lot of different things, but I don't like people to overthink it. <laughs> that could probably be the bottom line of today's talk. But I think that if you don't like dairy foods or you are vegan or there's other logical reasons you're not going to get those natural sources of calcium, it's perfectly okay to use a supplement. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. I just, 
sometimes I'll see people and they'll show up with 2,500 milligrams of a calcium supplement. And I'm like, whoa, okay, we don't really need to be doing this. Um, and yeah. so, you know, kind there's of healing it back. That, right? Like there's risks in taking too much. Well, there's, yes. I mean, too much of a good thing is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and with calcium, it, you know, like calcium carbonate for some people can contribute to some GI problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the research has been really debated about whether calcium supplementation contributes to some cardiovascular health concerns. Um, I think that the endocrine society has said, nope, there's no reason for concern related to that now. But the jury is out on that. I mean, we see the same thing like with omega-3 fatty acid supplements. Early on, you know, some of the re- early research suggested that higher supplements um, would be a good intervention for individuals who had elevated triglycerides, for example. But now more recent research is starting to show that, you know, for omega-3 fatty acids, doses higher than one gram per day seem to increase a person's risk of atrial fibrillation. Oh. So, you know, who is the person that's at risk? I mean, maybe it's that that person was already at risk for atrial fibrillation and then that level of omega-3s contributed Mm. and they don't really know, right? This is where then we have open questions and research has to continue and then we have to, but, but that's another one. Like what if you just had two servings of salmon a day, uh, a week, not a day, (laughs) Um, you know, or, you know, you, you know, focused on that and then did, a more reasonable dose of omega-3s or my recommendation, I know I kind of went on a tangent on the omega-3s. If someone's using those, just make sure at those higher doses that you have a general practitioner or a qualified provider or a cardiologist who's supervising or overseeing that, that implementation. Okay. Um, we, we, I'll just ask one more question on the diet culture stuff because it can be really quite, confusing and but there's always a diet du jour right so these days Mm -hmm. I feel like it's intermittent fasting and time restricted feeding and a few years ago or a decade ago it was um low carb and and paleo and all this keto stuff and way back it was calories in and calories out right it was just all about the calories I think almost everybody can recognize like okay this is just another iteration of a diet but how do we not fall prey to these things? Because this, is, I think, can be a real, people are at risk of this, I, I think. Yeah, I, I think it starts with recognizing that the calories in equals calories out type of mantra is really not accurate, right? No. Like that's a very simplistic way to talk about something that's very complex and quite dynamic related to energy metabolism as a whole. When it comes to diets, what happens is that like, so time-restricted feeding, I think is a really great example or intermittent fasting. Um, You know, the way it gets marketed at, and and keto was the same way, right? Keto got marketed in this way of, hey, there's something super special about this. This isn't really just a calorie restriction. This is different. This is really, we're, we're kicking up this part of your energy system that's going to use fat for fuel and it's going to be better. And, you know, boy, we could see the writing on the wall when that first came out. And I was right there to read that research and pay attention to only say, hold on a second, like 75% of your calories from fat, that's 
that goes that stands in the face of all the cardiovascular research. So that seems pretty contraindicated to me, not to mention we're not going to eat fruit anymore. And we're not going to eat. So you have to be a little bit logical about that. And this, I would say the same is true about the time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting um, is really to look at, is that feasible? So even if you were, even if it is a calorie restriction, so the, the researchers behind intermittent fasting every single time you read those papers will say, this is really just an easy way to do calorie restriction. Yeah, They're not even pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. (laughs) It's just that the marketers or whoever's trying to sell that are, you know, kind of confusing people. But if you read the original research, they'll say, yep, this is just an easy way to do calorie restriction. And so then what you have to ask yourself, if you buy into that for whatever reason, is whatever you decide to do, Will you be able to do it forever and ever? Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because even if you just bottom line, cut your calories because you are a pressure cooker about your weight and you just have to do whatever it takes to lose that weight and you cut those calories and you lose some weight, you can't go back, right? Like as soon as you increase your calories your body's going to be like, Oh, thankful, you know, cause yeah. the body picked that up as a famine. Right. The body doesn't understand you were just trying to like feel better in your body. Um, and so that's that problem that happens. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of thinking about instead of focusing on calories or focusing on numbers and some of that, maybe attacking it from a standpoint of where do you think your eating is maybe not consistent in the day? What are some of the health things that you care about that might be how you might switch your focus? So I think bone health can be a really great example, like because those are conflicting things like, oh, I really want to lose weight. I want to feel better in my body. That's the only way I know how to feel better in my body is to lose weight. But I'm really concerned about my bone health because my grandmother had osteoporosis. The reality is that people, I think, think of osteoporosis as, well, I might have a fracture. It'll just sideline me for a little bit. It's more than just a little inconvenience. Like I have women who are hospitalized because they fracture ribs from coughing. So the reality is that when you thin that bone out by the time you're 60, 70, 80, it it is really problematic. So, Mm -hmm. so it is kind of having some connection with other people, getting the support so that you can do what it takes. Because then if you think about what we just talked about with bone health, okay, then you might be more motivated to make sure you eat enough. We're not saying just go, you know, throw caution to the wind and not, mm-hmm. you know, be intentional. You might, you know, get a good dietitian to re- you know, assess your nutrition and give you some guidance with that. Um, And then, you know, we need to have quality protein and we need the fruits and vegetables and the leafy greens because that's where we're going to get the magnesium and the vitamin K and all these other important nutrients and the calcium. And that can feel more fun. Yeah, because we get to eat. (laughs) But we get to eat, we get to enjoy food, we get to eat with our grandchildren and run around and chase. And that's the other thing is like, really, what is more important to you in the next 20 and 10 or 20 years? Um, For me, I will just say, I really, really want to be able to chase my grandchildren around. My, I just did a weekend with my parents who are 82 years old, and we walked all over the Biltmore House, if anyone's familiar with that, in Asheville, Georgia, or Asheville, North Carolina. And I look at them and I think, that's what I want to be able to do. Like, I want to be able to stay up on my feet, 
moving around. And, um, and so that can kind of help when the weight stuff seems to be pulling you in the diet culture direction. Yeah. Good pause, reflect, Mm -hmm. you know, rethink like what really matters for me in the next season of my life. What do I really value and focus on that and use your nutrition to support those goals. Yeah. And I think particularly with athletes, their athletic pursuits can be that. Like I want to be competing at the world masters athletics championships in whatever year. And, uh, you know, like they can really use their, their athletic pursuits to, to ground them in that way. But I agree bone health. I was listening to a podcast today and the woman, you can tell me if, if I heard this correctly, but she was saying that the, the risk for osteoporosis, or it might've been even like fractures is higher in postmenopausal women than the risk for breast cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer combined. Like we're not and, afraid enough about <laughs> osteoporosis and heart, we, disease. and heart disease, right? Yeah, yeah. I have a chart that I use in my presentations as well, that the number of fractures, osteoporotic fractures is much higher. I don't remember what, I mean, if you look at the graph, it's like, it's yeah. a very big, obvious difference. And then again, it's out of no disrespect to those with breast cancer or heart disease. The point from the bone health standpoint is that we have lots of preventive measures to look for, right? We go in for our mammograms, we, we monitor cholesterol, triglycerides, blood lipids. So we have all these preventive health measures. The, the problem with osteoporosis, um, in the healthcare system is that it's not indicated to have a DEXA, which is a, a scan that you would have done to check your bone density until after age 65. Yeah. That's what they were saying in this podcast. Yeah, it's so like, it's what? kind of problematic. And there's a lot of, and then it's, it's, it's an interesting debate in terms of, well, what would it matter if you had your DEXA? Now in my sports medicine clinic, we do a lot of ordering DEXAs and, and we, ha- you, you have to have a reason for mm. health insurance to cover it. Um, and some of these DEXAs that are done in like, say the little boutique clinics are not necessarily done by, you know, um, I, I should be careful how I say that. I, I would just encourage someone to, if you do, if you are worried about your bone health, maybe there's a family history of bone disease, mm-hmm. or you've been lower weighted, or you've had thyroid issues, like there's a certain number of criteria. Um, you know, ask your gynecologist or ask your general practitioner at your annual visit to say, I'd really like to see where my bone health is. Like, I'd really like to have that checked. And you can request that and, you know, make sure and, you know, check and see what health insurance would cover on that. But I do think that's really important that we have a sense at age 50, ideally, where that foundational bone health is. And and then you might do it again at age 60 and go from there. I I think it's really important and can, and if assuming that your bone health is, you know, good for your age, then that can be motivating that you want to protect that bone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Back to what motivates you. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, you've talked about some strategies nutritionally, but I'm also hearing that like a big chunk of this is genetically driven. So looking at like, your mom or your aunt or your sisters or whatever, and, and their yeah. bone health can be a big indicator. And then maybe you can ask for these DEXAs earlier than age 60. Is that what you're saying? Right. right. Yeah. The other thing um, with the bone health, uh, just because we went down that 
the whole thing with nutrition, but also this is where activity is really important, Mm -hmm. right? So weight bearing, load bearing activity puts pressure, you know, when the muscle has to pull against that bone is what strengthens that bone as well. And so, so it's an important intervention uh, to make sure that you're not just lifting soup cans, but that you really are doing something meaningful. But I would also say, it's okay to get on your hands and knees and clean the floor, right? Like maybe, maybe you don't really want to go lift weights or those aren't, maybe you don't have access to a Mm -hmm. gym. I mean, you know, people can live in rural areas and they don't have access to, you know, good weight lifting equipment or a gym or those kinds of things. Then you can do push-ups and you can do other activity, um, try to make it something that's it's fun, but just to keep that in mind that I think sometimes when we talk about the resistance training, people imagine that they have to go to a gym with a lot of big weights and hire a personal trainer, which I highly recommend actually <laughs> that you, if you are going to do that, get a good personal trainer or physical therapist who can teach you proper, um, form and how to do that correctly. Um, but, but that, it isn't a one size fits all. I mean, we have to do really be respectful of, you know, what someone wants to be able to do and can do so that they don't kind of should on themselves about that. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And don't overthink it. (laughs) And not overthink it. Actually. Absolutely. I mean, I always think about like my grandmother who lived to a, you know, old age, she never lifted weights, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think about our grandparents, they, but they did work in the field. They did do other things. Um, so it was functional exercise if you want to think of it that way. So if you have a more sedentary lifestyle, then yes, you have to be more intentional with some of those things. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're going to be unhealthy if you don't do that. Yeah. You've given us so many great, um, ways to thrive during this phase of life Mm -hmm. and feel empowered, you know, like it's a great opportunity to reassess your life goals and priorities and focus on the things you can control. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners from your perspective um, on ways to, to really not just survive, but thrive during this phase of life? Well, I think one thing is to um, be careful to not buy into all of the media messages that are kind of promoting menopause as the dreaded disease that you need to fix. Um, If we really think about menopause as this natural biological event that happens for half the human population all over the world, and that everyone's experience of it is different, it puts it in its proper place. It's very similar to puberty and pregnancy where these are times of hormonal transition that we experience our bodies in very different ways because of that. And some people sail right through pregnancy with no problems. And some people have a lot of problems with pregnancy and the same with puberty. And absolutely, if you're struggling or have some concerns about signs or symptoms, get to a qualified you know, menopause practitioner or a doctor that you trust and, you know, take a look at, you know, is hormone therapy a good idea for you? Are there other interventions that might be indicated if you're really, really struggling mentally, like have some depression or mood dysregulation? That is something not to ignore, but to, you know, get some answers from someone as to what you need to do. But for other people who are maybe, you know, not really there yet, um, to recognize that, be careful that, 
you know, there's this saying that if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So if we start to believe that every single symptom we're experiencing is menopause, yeah. that's probably exaggerated and not entirely true. And some of this just comes along with aging. And I would say, so I'm a 58-year-old, um, very late perimenopausal woman. I think I'm almost postmenopausal TMI. Uh, but there's nothing better than not getting your period, right? Like, but, <laughs> but knowing that it's like for a good health reason, right? It's not because you're, yeah. you know, yeah. healing your body, but to wear white jeans whenever you need to or want to <laughs> and not be worried about something happening. Um, I would also say that I went through extensive hot flashes, night sweats, all of that. And I'm on the other side of that for now. I mean, who knows? Things can change. But I feel much more calm. My anxiety is a little more in check. I don't get the headaches like I used to. I heard some of your other um, interviews. Mm-hmm. I've had headaches my whole life, migraines specifically, and been treated for migraines. And now those have even gotten less okay. um, and less intense. So um, to know that it's it's not as bad as I think sometimes we hear about yeah. it and then people are freaked out. It's like, okay, it really can be a great time in life, let me tell you. Oh, I, I love the reframe. <laughs> I love that you're giving us something because you're right. There, There is a lot, like even just in preparation for, for this interview and the others we've done in the series, I'm like, whoa, it's a lot of doom and gloom stuff. And for the most part, I feel pretty darn good. You know, I don't want to fear this next decade mm-hmm. of my life, right? So I appreciate the way that you rethink aging and invite us to, to rethink aging in with a very compassionate approach. Um, love the non-scale victories and some of these new ideas I'm going to definitely take with me. So uh, Val, thank you so much for your time today, for coming on the show and giving us uh, so much juicy, good information. So yeah, we appreciate you. Yay. Thanks for having me. I loved the conversation. Huge thanks to Canadian Masters Athletics for sponsoring this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you love running, jumping, throwing, or walking and want to be part of a supportive community of like-minded people, then head on over to canadianmasters.ca to learn more or check out our show notes for their social links. We'd love to continue the conversation on the CMA Facebook group and Instagram. Instagram.